The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We have been working our way, passage by passage, through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage, and as it happens, the last passage we come to is Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 31. It says, After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the, the twin gods of a, as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Pudu Lee. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard us, came as far as the Forum of Appius in, the, in three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we're taught that the heavens and earth 
will pass away, but your words will never pass away. They're eternally true, eternally relevant, and eternally powerful. And so please help us, Father, to see the truth of this text and to understand its relevance and experience its power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've lived in Pittsburgh very long, or I guess just about any other larger city, then you're probably very familiar with what it's like to be stuck in traffic. I'm sure there are some painful stories that we could all tell of times when we have set off to a certain destination uh, thinking it would take us a certain amount of time only to run into something unexpected like construction or something like that and be delayed significantly. Uh, I remember this one time I was going out to a destination that required taking 376 out toward the airport And uh, this was back when they were doing that massive construction project on 376 that seemed to drag on forever. And it was even worse on this particular day because, as you may know, on Saturdays, they'll a lot of times do things that they don't want to do during the work week. So I forget what exactly they were doing, but my trip was supposed to take about 45 minutes, but instead it ended up taking about two hours to get there. So, yeah. Needless to say, I was not very happy about that. And actually, even just yesterday, my wife was going to the Walmart in West Mifflin, and it would typically take about 15 or 20 minutes. It took her one hour because of the stuff they were doing on Lebanon Church Road. And so that is just one of the realities of living in a city, right? You will be stuck in traffic sometimes. And perhaps that's similar to the way you've felt or are currently feeling about life. It's not uncommon for us to feel somewhat stuck in a certain situation or perhaps have that feeling about our lives in general. We might wonder, you know, is life going anywhere? How long will this situation last? Or why do I even have to go through this in the first place? Those are questions that most of us have probably asked at one time or another. So what exactly should we do when we feel stuck and frustrated? How can we respond to those kinds of circumstances in a biblical way? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul's example here in Acts 28 is very instructive for us and shows us how we can respond to frustrating circumstances in a way that glorifies God. Now, to remind you of the background here, Paul is currently incarcerated and has actually been incarcerated for over two years now. It's hard to imagine being more stuck in life than that. And to make it even worse, the charges against him are absolutely baseless, and should have been dismissed long ago. The only reason they weren't dismissed is because certain politicians were, well, being politicians. But now uh, Paul has exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed his case to Caesar. 
So after a harrowing journey by sea, uh, verses 11 through 15 of our main passage record Paul and the rest of his traveling companions, including the, the soldiers who were guarding him, finally arriving in Rome. We then read in verse 16, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So apparently, Paul's exemplary character had earned for him a reputation that resulted in him being allowed to stay in his own living quarters with only minimal security. Uh, He was probably shackled to the soldier who was guarding him and not allowed to leave his living quarters. But other than that, he enjoyed a decent amount of freedom considering the circumstances, including uh, the freedom, as we'll see, to have people over. And that's what he does in verses 17 through 20. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So Paul was in a rather delicate situation here. On the one hand, he needed to explain to these Jews why he was incarcerated, which included the bogus charges that the Jews of Jerusalem were trying to pin on him, and also demonstrate that he was innocent. And yet on the other hand, Paul undoubtedly wanted to avoid offending the Jewish community at Rome. Notice also how he says that it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Paul's gospel message, his message of Jesus, wasn't in any way inconsistent with Old Testament teaching, but was rather the very thing that the Old Testament consistently held out as the hope of Israel. In prophecy after prophecy, the Old Testament consistently pointed people to the coming Messiah who would rescue his people from their sin. And Paul was doing that exact same thing with the understanding that that Messiah had, in fact, come in the person of Jesus. We then read about how the Jews of Rome responded in verses 21 through 23. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So this is pretty incredible. Paul can't go out to the synagogue, and so many of the Jews from the synagogue simply come to him. 
And from morning until evening, he does what we might call an evangelistic Bible study with them. He invites them over to his house, opens the Scriptures, and shows them what the Scriptures say about Jesus. Then, verses 24 through 29, And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. So if you've been with us as we've journeyed together through the book of Acts, then you know that this is almost exactly what's happened in so many of the cities that Paul went to. It fits the pattern that Paul would arrive in a city, go to the local synagogue, and preach the gospel. Then, quite often, many of the Jews would reject the gospel, leading Paul to turn his attention to the Gentiles, or non-Jews, of the city, and start focusing his ministry efforts on them. It happened time after time, and now it's happening again here. Though this time, all within the confines of Paul's house. The book of Acts then closes with a two-verse summary of Paul's subsequent ministry in Rome. Verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the way Acts ends. (laughs) Sort of a cliffhanger, I guess, uh, because we're not told what happens to Paul after that. Instead, we're simply left with a picture of Paul there in Rome continuing his gospel ministry. And I believe that's the most notable feature of this text. Paul doesn't let the fact that he's under house arrest keep him from telling people about Jesus. It even says that he does that without hindrance. And from that, to borrow a popular expression, we can see that Paul was committed to bloom where he was planted. And that's the main idea of this entire text. Paul was committed to bloom where he was planted. You know, think about the way grass grows just about anywhere it can, right? Any homeowner with a sidewalk or a driveway, you know, you know what I'm talking. This gets on your nerves. There is no place almost where grass will not grow. Even the the tiniest crack in the sidewalk or the driveway, grass is going to find a way to grow there. And that's quite similar to what we hear or what we see here in Acts 28. Paul's circumstances were far from ideal, 
But he nevertheless embraced the situation as God's will for that season of his life and faithfully took advantage of every opportunity he had to continue his gospel ministry. Of course, I'm sure it wasn't anything close to what he thought his ministry in Rome would be like. Uh, he had probably envisioned himself, you know, preaching to, to massive crowds in the Roman marketplace and reasoning with the leading intellectuals of the city in, in, in various different places. And yet, Paul accepted the fact that that wasn't God's will for him right now and chose to be faithful with the ministry opportunities that God saw fit to give him. In fact, Paul not only opens his house to anyone and everyone who's interested in talking about Jesus with him, but he also uses those two years under house arrest to write four of the letters that are now included in the New Testament. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All four of those letters were written during this imprisonment. In addition, uh, Paul was uh, very deliberate about engaging not only the random visitors who walked through this door, but also the soldiers who were assigned to guard him. Uh, you may remember me saying that Paul was most likely shackled to these soldiers, and so he literally had a captive audience 24-7. And whenever there was a shift change, there was another opportunity for him to talk about Jesus. And now, surprisingly, we read in Philippians 1, 12, and 13, which, remember, was written during this imprisonment. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Also, in addition to that impact among the imperial guard, Paul's witness apparently had an impact in the very household of Caesar himself. Paul writes in Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you. That, that means Christians. All the Christians greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So it sounds like Paul had a pretty fruitful ministry during his time under house arrest. You know, I can't help but think as I read this of the story of John Bunyan. Um, not to be confused with Paul Bunyan, by the way. That's someone very different. Uh, but John Bunyan was a Puritan pastor from the 1600s who wrote the famous book Pilgrim's Progress. And he was imprisoned, just like Paul did. John Bunyan was in prison for a total of 12 years for his crime of holding unauthorized religious gatherings that the governing authorities there in England didn't approve of. And yet, it was actually from his prison cell that Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which subsequently went on for several centuries, actually, to be the second best-selling book in the world, second only to the Bible itself. And in addition to writing Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Bunyan was actually able to keep preaching the gospel verbally as well. Uh, you see, his prison cell had a window in it that faced a stone wall, uh, a wall that went all the way around the prison. And yet, on many days, Bunyan would actually preach 
out of his window loudly enough that people on the other side of the stone wall could hear them. And there would actually be gathered several hundred people out there, apparently, to hear this man preach out of his prison window. So they found a way. I don't know if they arranged a particular time or what exactly the the situation was, but they found a way to still hear their pastor preach his sermons even from his prison cell. So the point is that John Bunyan didn't just sit around in that cell feeling sorry for himself and, and, and doing nothing. No, he was faithful in using every opportunity available to him for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. He bloomed where he was planted, just like the Apostle Paul in Acts 28. You see, if you believe the truth that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, the reality of God's providence, it allows you to flourish even in the midst of circumstances that you wouldn't typically choose for yourself. Providence, we said, is the biblical teaching that God is not only sovereign and in control over our circumstances, but is also purposeful within them. Even if we can't understand exactly what God's doing, he's still doing something and accomplishing his perfect purposes through every situation we'll ever face. And if you really believe that, well, then it naturally leads you to seek to leverage your circumstances to the fullest extent possible for the sake of God's kingdom and God's glory. So let me encourage you to think about how you can do that in the midst of your current circumstances. In fact, let me briefly suggest how you might leverage your circumstances, even right now, in a manner that's patterned after Paul's outreach efforts here in Acts 28. Your circumstances might not be what you would want them to be, but you can still leverage them for the kingdom of God. And so first, think through the people that God has placed in your life. Those people aren't there just by accident. (laughs) Uh, No, just like Paul, or just like God placed those soldiers in Paul's life for a reason, And just as he brought the other people he brought to Paul's house for a reason, well, he's also placed those individuals in your life for a reason. So think through all of those people that God has sovereignly and providentially brought into your life. You know, the family and and friends and neighbors and coworkers, whoever. And then second, start using your house for outreach. That's one particularly notable feature of Paul's ministry in Rome. And, of course, Paul did that in part because he couldn't leave his house, obviously. But hospitality is still an incredibly effective stepping stone to sharing the gospel uh, with people, Uh, especially, from what I've seen, if that includes sharing a meal together. You know, there's just something about eating a meal that, that... brings people together and deepens relationships and builds bonds of trust 
in an incredible way. Um, you know, one goal that Becky and I have had for several years now is to have uh, about one person or family over to our house um, every week if we're able to, especially people that we don't, we either don't know them very well yet or people that we are trying to reach out to evangelistically. Um, and that, of course, there are seasons where we kind of take a break and, and we, we don't maintain that exact pace, but even in those seasons, we, we still try to make that a regular fixture in our lives. And finally, uh, third, invite people over for evangelistic Bible studies. Paul was obviously not just hosting dinner parties in Rome, but was actually inviting people over to open the Bible together and explore what it says about Jesus and answer any questions that people might have. And uh, that just so happens to be a major emphasis at our church as well. Uh, We call these gatherings evangelistic Bible studies, and basically these are informal gatherings in which Christians and non-Christians gather together uh, to study the Bible with the goal of learning more about Jesus. Uh, They might consist of several Christians and several non-Christians together, or just one Christian and one non-Christian together. And I don't know exactly how Paul conducted his evangelistic Bible studies, But here at Redeeming Grace, we usually encourage uh, meeting together once each week uh, for about an hour each time and uh, having these meetings for a defined period of time, usually around uh, four to eight weeks, uh, because uh, what we found is that someone who's not yet a Christian is usually more comfortable participating in something that's defined like that rather than just something that's open-ended. And so I I would just love if every Christian in our church would engage with non-Christians in this way, really, as often as you have opportunity to do so. I mean, it might just be as simple as inviting your neighbor or friend over to your house for six weeks, let's say, to explore the gospel of John together. And if that's something you're interested in doing, then I'll just say we have plenty of resources to help you, including um, curricula that are Uh, designed specifically for people who are newer to the Bible. So please don't hesitate to ask about that. But as we can see here, evangelistic Bible studies date all the way back at least to Acts 28 and probably even prior to that. And uh, by the way, the way we originally kind of got this idea was from a, a book I was reading called Evangelism in the Early Church. It focused on the first two or three centuries of the church's existence. It was by a noted historian published by Oxford. And um, basically, the early church, as you may be aware, exploded in numbers in those first few centuries, despite heavy opposition and often even persecution. And so apparently, they were on to something. And uh, a key fixture in their outreach was these home-based evangelistic studies. And so I just offer uh, these three suggestions to you as a way in which you can bloom where you're planted in a manner that closely mirrors what we see Paul doing here in Acts 28. So regardless of where you are or what frustrations you're facing in life right now or what limitations you have or, or really just about anything else in your life that you wish was different. 
This is a way that you can leverage the opportunities currently available to you for the sake of God's glory and God's kingdom. Yet there's also a broader application of this passage that I would like to explore. The immediate application of Acts 28 is blooming where you're planted in the sense of leveraging your circumstances for the kingdom of God and and reaching out to the people God's placed around you. Yet there's also the broader application of blooming where you're planted in the sense of seeking to glorify God in general, no matter what your circumstances might be. For example, maybe you're in a marriage in which you're deeply unsatisfied, and you kind of feel stuck in that marriage. Well, hopefully this passage is an encouragement for you to bloom where you're planted in the midst of a marriage that's not necessarily all that you desire it to be. So instead of asking, how can I get out of this marriage? Maybe start asking questions like these. How can I glorify God in the midst of my current frustrations? How can I live at peace with my spouse insofar as it depends on me? How can I demonstrate the love of Christ toward my spouse, even when that love isn't reciprocated? How might God be using this situation to accomplish His purposes in my own heart? What steps can I take toward a marriage that's healthier? And where can I find the support I need to maintain a healthy relationship with Jesus in the midst of such a challenging relationship with my spouse? So your marriage might be far from ideal, just as Paul's imprisonment was far from ideal. But that doesn't mean you can't glorify God in the midst of it and in that way bloom where you're planted. Or to give another example, maybe you find yourself in a job where you're deeply unsatisfied. Now, unlike a marriage, of course, uh, you're totally free to quit your job and go somewhere else to work. But even if you decide to do that, chances are there will still be a period of time during which you're in a job that you really don't like. Well, instead of spending all your time continually daydreaming about greener pastures, you might find it worthwhile to consider questions like these. How can I honor my current boss to the maximum degree possible? How can I seek the welfare of the company I'm currently with to the maximum degree possible? How can I engage in my current work as worship to God? How can I demonstrate love for my current coworkers and sacrificially serve them? And of course, how can I make an impact on my current coworkers with the gospel? So maybe a good way that you can connect Acts 28 to your life is with a little less uh, griping about your job and a little less daydreaming about a better job and a little more effort to glorify God in the place that He currently has you working. And, of course, these two examples just scratch the surface of the different situations in which we're called to bloom where we are planted. Um, Other situations include being chronically ill 
while desiring to be healthy, uh, being single while desiring to be married, and living in one place while desiring to live in another place. Uh, just to share with you a quick story about that last one, uh, some of you may know a couple named uh, Tim and Joni who were involved uh, here at Redeeming Grace for about two or three years, and uh, who, by the way, gave me permission to, to share this story about them. Uh, they came to Pittsburgh for Tim's job and didn't really have any other uh, connections to the city. And if I understand things correctly, they didn't really care for Pittsburgh that much as a place to live. Uh, they really liked our church, but they felt just far away from their children and, and grandson. And so from very early on, uh, Tim tried to figure out a way to be closer to uh, th their family. Uh, over the next couple of years, he explored various opportunities to do that very extensively that would get them closer to where they wanted to live. Yet time after time, it just didn't work out. But guess what Tim and Joni did in the meantime? They didn't just loaf around here and do nothing. Now, they bloomed where they were planted. <laughs> Pittsburgh wasn't exactly where they wanted to be planted, but it's where God had them. And while God had them here, they were all in. So they actually took the initiative to, to start a Bible study at their house for some of the younger adults of the church. And uh, it was right after um, the worship gathering on Sunday morning, uh, so on Sunday afternoon, and, and they essentially took on sort of a mentorship role for many of those younger adults, especially the younger couples. So Tim and Joni were in their 50s, and they mentored a lot of younger folks in their 20s and 30s during their time here. And eventually, Tim did end up changing jobs, and, and his company allowed him and Joni to move out closer to one of their children. But they nevertheless made a significant impact during the time they were here in Pittsburgh. So let me encourage you to glorify God to the maximum degree possible in the midst of your current circumstances, even if those circumstances aren't exactly what you'd want them to be. Now, in case you're wondering, I do believe it's biblical and pleasing to God to pursue better circumstances, uh, just as Tim and Joni were doing that whole time. There are many biblical passages that, that do support that. And even the Apostle Paul here in our main passage was pursuing better circumstances in the midst of his imprisonment, right? Don't forget that the reason Paul was in Rome in the first place was because he had appealed his case to Caesar. So he didn't just roll over and passively surrender to the injustices that were being committed against him. No, he was engaging in a legal battle. So in the language of blooming where we're planted, we might say that there's nothing wrong with seeking to be transplanted at times so that we can bloom in another place. Now, of course, we always want to do that in a manner that's consistent with biblical principles and kingdom priorities, but by all means, pursue positive changes in your life. You know, um, try to get more education, start a company, <laughs> try to excel in your career. I mean, heck, I don't know, get a new haircut. Like, 
whatever you want to do. Be ambitious in a good way for the glory of God. And then finally, in order to bloom where you're planted in the particular way that we've been talking about, there's an underlying satisfaction and contentment that's required. And that satisfaction is found only in Jesus. You see, apart from Jesus, we'll always be profoundly empty and unsatisfied in our lives, regardless of what our external circumstances might be. Yet listen to what Jesus says in John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then we also read this in the next chapter, in John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus satisfies the thirsty soul in a way that nothing else can. And he's the only one who can give us the the baseline satisfaction that's required in order to seek to glorify God in the midst of challenging circumstances and in that way bloom where we are planting. You see, having a transcendent joy in Christ that's not dependent on our earthly circumstances makes all the difference in the world when it comes to living in the manner we've been talking about today. And by the way, that's what makes this message different than some kind of self-help advice or inspirational pep talk. What we need in order to bloom where we're planted is a satisfaction that isn't derived from our circumstances or even found within ourselves, but rather a satisfaction that's found only in Jesus. And we experience that satisfaction specifically when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. You see, the Bible teaches that in our natural condition, we've alienated ourselves from God by our sinful rebellion. Even worse than that, we've brought upon ourselves God's judgment. That's what the future holds by default for every single person in this world. But thankfully, God in his mercy, he didn't leave us in that wretched condition, but instead sent his own son, Jesus, to this earth in order to rescue us. Jesus came and lived a perfect life life in our place that completely satisfied the requirements of God's law and then died a sacrificial death in our place in order to take the punishment for our sins and then three days after that rose from the dead. And because of that, he now stands ready to save everybody who turns away from their sins and looks to him for rescue. 
Also, once we do that, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to actually reside within us and to fill us with a joy that's supernatural. And that's what enables us, no matter what our circumstances might be, to embrace those circumstances as God's will for that season of our lives and to thrive in the midst of them. To state it concisely, Jesus puts a joy in our hearts that transcends whatever circumstances we might be facing and enables us to bloom and thrive in the midst of them.